Well, a Sunday school teacher was attempting to impress upon a class of boys the importance of living out the Christian life. And the teacher says, why do people call me a Christian? And the class paused for a moment, and one of the little boys said, maybe it's because they don't know who you are. Out of the mouth of babes, right? We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled, Follow Me. Jesus, as he was calling his initial disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And this would be the same call that Jesus would offer to his disciples and to others throughout his earthly ministry. And it's the same call that Jesus makes today when he calls us unto salvation and calls us to follow after him. Last week we began walking through the Sermon on the Mount together. And we said that the Sermon on the Mount is the most important sermon ever preached. This morning I want you to know that the Sermon on the Mount is not only the most important sermon that's ever been preached, it's also a disciple-making, disciple-equipping sermon. You and I are here this morning I pray because we want to be made into disciples. And as we are made into disciples, may we become a church that's about going out and making disciples as well. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be focusing this morning on three particular Beatitudes, verses 3, 4, and 5. But I want us to read this entire section together. I want us to see this, um, this passage as it reads from Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. So read with me this morning. It says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened up his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. By way of review, I want us to remember two things about the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is this. The the Beatitudes can only be lived out by Christians. Just like the fruit of the Spirit is for Christians, so too are the Beatitudes. This sermon that Jesus preached, he preached to two groups of people. There was the inner crowd, his disciples, and then there were those that were, um, we will call them um, the admirers of Jesus. That was the outer circle of people. The disciples are the ones that were the Christ followers. They were the ones that Jesus said, come and follow me. And when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches directly 
to them. There was also the outer circle of people, the crowd. The crowd were those that were admirers of Jesus. They liked what Jesus had to say. They, they liked and were amazed at his um, healing abilities, but they yet were not yet Christ followers. My prayer for us in this room is that we will always have people that are disciples of Jesus Christ, and we will always have admirers of Jesus Christ, those that are on the verge of receiving Christ, on the verge of following Christ, but not quite there yet. And as a result of them coming in proximity of us as a faith family, they are introduced to the good news of salvation. And I pray that we will invite admirers to church as well so that they can hear the truth of God's word as it is preached. When Jesus preaches a sermon on the mount, he does not say, live like this in order to be saved. He says, live like this because you are saved. Notice the second thing, the Beatitudes are a package deal. They are a package deal. You and I cannot pick and choose which of the Beatitudes that we want to live by. We can't say that I want to be a peacemaker and yet I don't want to put myself in places where I may be persecuted. What has Jesus said? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he also said, blessed are those who are persecuted. It's a package deal, folks. When we walk through the Beatitudes, we have to understand and realize that Jesus is calling us to all of these Beatitudes, not just the ones that we like, when we like them, and etc. So, Knowing this, let us begin this morning just walking through the Sermon on the Mount together. Jesus begins his sermon with this word, blessed. Blessed, when translated from the Greek, means happy. When translated from Latin, means blessing or approval upon. And fundamentally, it is the idea of being approved. Jesus begins teaching his disciples and telling them that this is the kind of life that God approves of. The first thing that God approves of as we walk through these Beatitudes is this. A life that is spiritually dependent on God. Notice point number one, recognize your spiritual condition. Jesus said in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we walk through these beatitudes together, I want us to see the, the first part and then we'll come um, and study the second part as well. The first part is this, this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? This word poor that Jesus refers to here, um, this word is tohos. And in Greek it means to shrink, to cower, or cringe, as a beggar would often do during Jesus' day. The word poor here does not simply mean poor. Okay, as you and I would think of poor today. It means begging poor. Or as my mom used to say, dirt poor. You and I think that we have a concept of what poor is in America. But the reality is, you and I have no idea what it really means to be poor. If you want to know what a a person that is poor looks like or a family that is poor. Understand this, that there's about 2 billion people in our world today that live on less than $2 a day. That's poor. 
You and I don't really understand what poor is in our American culture because here's the reality. At any time, a poor person in America can go and find a bed to sleep in and they can find a meal to eat. They can go to the local shelter. They can go to the local food bank or they can show up at the thousands of churches that are in America and ask for food. And the majority of the time, they're going to receive what it is that they need. So um, we don't really understand what poor is in America. The reality is that there are people in our world today that go days or weeks without eating food. And in fact, for some of them, they will resort to eating grass or dirt or tree limbs just so that they have that false feeling of being full. That is what poor looks like. And that is the kind of poor that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about that begging poor. In fact, later on in Jesus' teaching in Luke, Jesus refers to Lazarus as being this kind of poor. In Luke 16, 19 through 21, we read, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day at his gate. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Lazarus was a beggar that begged for the scraps from the rich man's table. That is begging poor. And that's what kind of poor that Jesus is talking about here. Now, he's not talking about a physical poor. He's talking about a spiritual poor poor. He's talking about the need for his disciples to recognize that they need to be spiritually bankrupt. He is calling us to be spiritually poor, absent of ourself and absent of our pride. One commentator um, puts it like this. He says, it is to see oneself as one really is, lost, hopeless, and helpless. Apart from Jesus Christ, every person is spiritually destitute. No matter what his education, wealth, social status, accomplishments, or religious knowledge, that is the point of this first beatitude. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence on God. They perceive that there are no saving resources in themselves and they can only beg for mercy and grace. They know they have no spiritual merit and they know they can earn no spiritual reward. Their pride is gone. Their self-assurance is gone. And they stand empty-handed before God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to be absent of self, absent of pride, absence of self-dependence, and be completely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins to teach his disciples, and he's telling them, blessed are you when you are spiritually bankrupt. Because when you are spiritually bankrupt, you're not depending on the things of this world for your satisfaction. You're depending upon me. And that's what each and every one of us must do. We must find our dependence, not on the things of this world, not in the things of this world, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper 
puts it like this. He, he says, what then is poverty of spirit? It is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is a sense of moral uncleanliness before God. It is a sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy before God. Everybody, but not everybody is called blessed. Only those that are Christ's followers are called blessed. Are you a blessed man or woman this morning because you have found your hope and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in the things of this world? Notice also, so we have blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the reward for the believer, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit, those who have become spiritually bankrupt, those who have turned from this world and repented of their sins and placed their faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, every single one of us in this room will die. One day, every single person outside of the doors of this church will close their eyes for the final time. And one or two places will be their reward. Either the kingdom of heaven, because they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or the kingdom of darkness, because they chose not to follow Jesus and instead die um, in their sin. And as a result, they will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Luke said, in, or Jesus said in Luke twelve thirty two, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven awaits those that place their faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, if you're a believer in this room this morning, guess what? Our reward is heaven. And one day we will dwell with the Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity there. Notice our second point. The scripture is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our point is this, reaction to sorrow. I think all of us um, in this room can recall times of mourning in our lives, can't we? You know, I could try this morning and play on our emotions and try to get you to remember back to specific losses in your life, but I don't need to do that because mourning is fresh on our minds typically. Mourning is a part of life. And I've said this before, if you and I live long enough, then we are going to mourn. We're going to lose loved ones. I read this week that Christianity is the only religion that allows you to be real. Christianity is the only religion that really allows a person to express their emotions. So when you hurt, don't bottle that up. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to cry because the Lord Jesus Christ makes it abundantly clear that blessed are those who mourn. You and I serve a Savior that, that can relate with every single thing that we go through on a daily basis. We serve a God that blesses the mourner. David, as he wept over the loss of his son Absalom, 
we read in 2 Samuel 18, 33, we read this. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David expressed true emotions when he lost his son. He expressed true emotions whenever he lost his son that he and Bathsheba had together. Jesus, as he um, came to the grave of his friend Lazarus, different Lazarus than we read about a second ago, Scripture says that Jesus wept when he lost his friend Lazarus. In the book of Psalm 56, verse 8, we read how the Lord bottles up our tears. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The Lord does not ignore our concerns, nor does he allow us to mourn on our own. The Lord is there with us at every moment of every day. It's okay to mourn. Know this, that, that, that death isn't the only reason that a person is brought to a sense of mourning. It's not the only reason that we weep in life. What Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about blessed are the mourner, he's not talking about mourning over the loss of a loved one. He's talking about the person who mourns as a result of their sinfulness. He said, blessed are those that mourn. We should mourn over our sins. That is the primary emphasis of this particular beatitude. You and I should be broken people when it comes to our sin. You know, that's not the case within our society today, is it? We celebrate the sins of men. We certainly don't condemn them. We turn our eyes toward the wickedness of our land, as opposed to calling the wicked to account, don't we? You and I need to share Paul's heartache with regard to sin. Paul recognized his own sinfulness and his own depravity. And in Romans chapter 7, we read of, of his, um, his struggle with the flesh. In Romans 7, beginning in verse 17, we read, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He goes on to say in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's sin left him a broken man, didn't it? He did not celebrate his sinfulness. He lamented over his sinfulness. He called himself a wretched man. When was the last time that our sinfulness called us to the point where we cried out to Jesus, recognizing that we were a wretched person because of our flesh? Isaiah As the Lord appeared to him in the temple, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was brought to the point of brokenness, wasn't he? He was brought to the point of brokenness because he recognized he was a sinner. Paul was brought to the point of brokenness where he cried out, wretched man am I, because he recognized that he was a sinner. What Jesus wants us to do as we walk through this particular beatitude is to be people that recognize our wretchedness, recognize our sins, so that we can cry out to him to forgive us. May we always Always not become hardened people when it comes to our sinfulness. But may we always be people that recognize our shortcomings so that we can seek Christ's forgiveness as we go through life. As we mourn over our sins, three things to remember in this process. The first one is this. There needs to be a sense of regret. When we sin, we need to be people that regret our mistakes. I know that I am a man that, have made, that has made many, many sins, committed many, many sins in my life, even this past week. We must regret those sins. We are not to just sweep them under the rug or to just place them in the back part of the recesses of our mind. We need to regret them. And there also needs to be a time in which we are um, remorseful or broken over our sins. Our sins should bring us to the point of brokenness just like it did with Isaiah and Paul. And then the final thing is there must be a point where we repent of our sins. Throughout this sermon series, um, we we have referred week in and week out to the message that John the Baptist preached whenever he was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus' first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You remember what that word repent means, right? It was a military term that that means to make an about face or a change in direction. When you and I repent of our sins, what we do is we leave that sin 
behind. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When we repent of our sins, we leave that sinful lifestyle behind and we, we turn around and we begin to live our lives for Jesus and for righteousness. You and I live in a land today, in a world today that is in desperate need of repentance, right? We need revival. You hear me talk about that frequently. We need revival as individuals. We need revival as a church. And we need revival as a nation. And in God's word, God's word makes it clear that in order for revival to occur, then repentance must happen. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people, conditional, if my people who are called by my name, will turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their lands. When you and I repent of our sins and make an about face from them and begin focusing our attention upon God's glory and God's holiness and God's righteousness, guess what happens? God will begin to heal our land. He will begin to heal our lives. He will begin to heal our churches and we will see revival. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. A fourth grade Sunday school teacher asked her class what repentance meant. And one of the children in the classroom says, it means you're sorry for something. You did. Another one said, it means you're sorry enough to quit. To mourn over sin is to express the appropriate sorrow sorrow that leads us to stop sinning. So blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness to the point where they stop sinning. So blessed are those who mourn. We mourn, obviously, when we lose a loved one. We are to be remorseful people and mourn over our sinfulness. And notice the, another area in which we are to, to, to mourn or to weep, and that is when it comes to the lost. Jesus, as he was preparing for the final days of his life, Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem, and he said these words. He, and, or we read, and when he drew near and saw the city, Luke tells us that he wept over it. Not only are we to, to mourn when life happens, but we are to also mourn and weep for the lost that live in this world. There are hundreds of millions of people today around this world that are on a collision course with hell. And until they come and and face Jesus Christ head on and turn from their sins and cry out to Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, they're going to continue on that collision course. May you and I be a faith family and individuals that are committed to taking the good news of salvation to those that do not know Jesus Christ. Notice what happens when we mourn. We have this promise from the Lord that we shall be comforted. You and I do not serve a God that is absent from his creation, do we? We serve a God that is ever, ever present with us. In fact, 
Jesus, before he ascended to be with the Father, he promised the disciples that he would send his Holy Spirit. And throughout his teaching ministry, in the midst of his disciples, he promised them that the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit would be their comforter. And we also read in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit would be their helper. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When you mourn, you are not on your own. For the unbeliever, they're on their own. Unfortunately, they are on their own. But for the believer, we are not on our own because we have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We have the Lord Jesus that is ever present with us. And we have God the Father that is watching over us this morning. Notice our final point this morning. It is this. We are to reflect the Son. We are to reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the humble is what this verse is referring to. The first thing I want you to see here as we looked at um, in our Believe series when we came to this word gentleness, a gentle person does not mean that you are a weak person. None of us in this room have ever been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be weak or to be inferior in any way. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. This word for meekness or gentleness comes from the Greek word praus. This word means to bring power under control. And with this word, there is a a word picture that goes with it. And it is the idea of a horse that is being brought under control. Gentleness is like a wild stallion with its power under control. When preaching through this sermon series, in order to better understand what it meant to, um, to, 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 bring a a wild stallion under control, I did a Google search and I came across this website that advertised that they specialize in in breaking wild horses and breaking wild stallion. And in, in fact, on that website, they called that process gentling. You and I have never been called to be weak people or inferior people to the rest of this world. What we are to be is we are to be people that are brought under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be meek or to be gentle, that we recognize that we are nothing without Jesus. And we recognize that we are going to submit to his leadership and to his word and be brought under his control. Yesterday at our men's breakfast, I shared with our our men about David's mighty men that that went to war on his behalf, went to war with him. And these were not weak men at all. They were some of the greatest fighting men that this world had ever seen. But these men understood who their king was. And they were under the leadership and the control of of King David. You and I also must understand who our leader is, who our king is, and it is King Jesus, and we are to be brought under his 
control in all that we do. A meek person is a powerful person that knows who their king is and ascribes great worth to the Lord Jesus Christ in all that they do. A meek person models the meekness of the king, models the meekness of the son. That's what it means to reflect the son and reflect his glory, being brought under his control so that he can work in and through us. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Philippians chapter 2. Um, we know that Jesus Christ was a mighty, mighty, mighty warrior. We know that there was no limit to his power. But when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came not to be served, but to serve, right? He came and he humbled himself. And Paul vividly writes, writes of his humility in Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ literally emptied himself of his life's blood so that you and I can come to faith in him. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He, he, he died for us so that we could inherit eternal life or, as we read here, so that we could inherit the earth. Blessed are those who... Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. For the believer, our reward is heaven. You know that, right? Our reward is heaven. When this life is over and we take our final breath, we will be ushered into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our reward and our inheritance as a result of us coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins is heaven. What a great picture of heaven we see in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." Folks, one day, all of those things are going to be gone. The mourning, the crying, the hurt, and the pain. And, and that day will come when Jesus Christ ushers us into his very presence. You and I must be disciple makers. 
We must be disciples of Jesus. Men and women that are committed and sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ that recognize our total dependence upon Jesus Christ because of our spiritual um, bankruptcy, our spiritual depravity. We must be people that daily are broken over our sinfulness so that we don't become hard-hearted to our sinfulness. And we need to be people that reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ every single day of our lives. Yesterday um, evening, um, Jim Needham and I had the opportunity to go over to Denton, to the Denton Freedom House. And there was a young man, I say he's a young man, he's, he's my age, so you can take that however you want. He's either young or old, however you look at it. Um, but he was a young man that came to our church for about six months. And he was a very, very sick man. He was a broken man. He had so many things in his life that he was wrestling with on a daily basis. And the first time that I met Manny, I encouraged him. I said, Manny, the only hope that you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that time, Manny didn't want to hear anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet every single Sunday, he came into this church Many times he went to Sunday school and he would come in and he would sit back in this back corner. And from the moment he walked into this room, he would sit down during the worship service. He would not stand up during the greeting time. He would not stand up during the preaching time. Obviously he didn't stand up, Um, but he just sat there. And he would just kind of stare into space that entire time. And over the course of this time, man, I I, I loved on him. Many of you loved on him. You invested in him. You shared with him the good news of salvation. But Manny didn't want to have anything to do with it. Finally, after hitting about as bottom as a person could hit, Manny agreed to go to the Denton Freedom House. He recognized that going there did not mean that he was going to become a Christian. He wasn't going there so that he could find Jesus. He was going, over, going there so that he could get better, so that he could get off the stuff that he was on. He realized that he needed help. I shared with him last night, it was a, there was a chair that was in the front of the room and, and the men that were a part of the house and, and other people could come up and just tell him how proud that they were of him. And I told Manny, I said, Manny, um, there are two things about your life that, that um, I am just so extremely proud of. I said, the number one day that I'm most proud of in your life is the day that you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. While he was in the Denton Freedom House, he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I said, the second day is this day, the day that you are graduating from the Denton Freedom House. This is a man that was brought to the point of brokenness. He recognized that he had no hope apart from Jesus. And as a result of that, he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he has spent the past about nine months of his life being discipled and equipped. And this is a different man. At the very end of this night, Manny stood up before the other men that were part of this program, the other 
family members and friends that were a part of that room. And he shared his testimony of what Jesus Christ had done in his life. Folks, there are other Mannies that are in this world in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And the reason we're walking through this sermon together is so that you and I can, can, can become better disciples so that we can in turn go and make disciples. There are Mannies out there that need us to invest in them. Let me challenge you to find a Manny, to find a man, if you're a man, that you can invest your life in, or a woman, if you're a woman, that you can invest your life in so that they too will have the opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Just to give you an idea of what an accomplishment it was for Manny to graduate from that place. He told me soon after um, I dropped him off over there. He said, man, as soon as you dropped me off, I almost walked down that dirt road and ran. I almost left that place, but I realized that if I left, I was going to be letting you down. I was going to be letting my friends down at the church, Friendship Baptist Church, and I'd be letting my family down. 36 men were a part of that program the day that he entered. Only four of those men graduated. So, that, I mean, it's an accomplishment that he, uh, that he went through what he went through. So that tells me this. You and I are going to find Manny's in this world that we can invest our life in. Unfortunately, many times we will start with somebody and that person will say, I don't want to have anything to do with your Jesus. And they will, they will give up and they will move on from that discipleship program. What does that mean? Do we give up? No, we keep investing in other people's life and keep equipping and keep pressing on. Let's be a church that equips people and presses on and invests in people's life so that people have an opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You may be here this morning and you may find your place at a, your life at a similar place as Manny was, where you have always said, I don't want to have anything to do with this Jesus. But this morning, as a result of a song that we have sung or a scripture that we have read or something that you have heard, you realize that the only hope you have is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you do not know for certain if you were to die, if you would spend eternity with Jesus in heaven or you would spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell, then this morning I invite you during our time of invitation to come and give your life over to Jesus Christ. You may be here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and you recognize that, man, this is a place that God is calling me and my family. If that is you, we invite you to come and join this church. You may need to come and just kneel at this altar and just say, God, I spend all my day, all every day around nothing but Christians, so I never get in proximity of guys like Manny or gals that don't know Jesus. You may need to come here and say, God, reveal to me someone that I can invest my life in. So if you need to come at this altar and just pray, you do that. Let's stand together, and I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. If there's a decision you need to make, you come. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that you have allowed us to come together as a faith family. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are absolutely nothing without you. And so, Father God, may we always be a people, a, a, a group of called out ones that recognize that daily 
We must die to ourselves. We must die to any semblance of pride in our life so that we can be completely, totally, 100% focused on you. Lord Jesus, I just prayed this morning that if there is someone here in this room that does not have a relationship with you, that today they'll make the greatest decision that they could ever make. Lord Jesus, I also pray this morning, if there are some here this morning that need to join this church, that today will be the day that they do that. Lord, open up our hearts, open up our minds, Father God, and we place upon our lives the name of or names of individuals that you are calling us to invest in, to disciple, and to equip. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you for this morning. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If there's a decision you need to make, you come. If you need to come trust in Jesus, you come. You need to come join in this church, you come. Otherwise, pray where you're at or come to this altar and pray. You come this morning. You come.